following podcast is recorded and produced by the Podcast Precinct in affiliation with the network at BICBP-radio.com. The Podcast Precinct. Consistency. Creativity. Culture. Men wanted for hazardous journey. Small wages. Bitter cold. Long months of complete darkness. Constant danger. Safe return doubtful. Honor and recognition in case of success. Hey, losers, throw on your hats and your parkas. This week, we're headed to the cold, bitter, Weddell Sea to talk about Ernest Shackleton. Sir Ernest Shackleton. I'm Cheetah. I'm Chop. And I'm Choop. Put some respect on my man Ernest Shackleton. Yeah, today we're going we're gonna to dive into this story today. Uh, it's something I've really been looking forward to for a while now. Um, not only is it a good just explorer story, but it's a great story of, uh, you know, just heroism, heroism and leadership, you know? Absolutely. What this guy, Ernest Shackleton, was able to get his crew through is, you know, it's nothing, uh, short of amazing, you know? He's a guy that should be, should definitely be talked about more. Uh, he's become a little more famous as of late this year just because of something that happened, but, uh, we'll talk about that a little later on. But, uh, yeah. You know, we're going to weave you this tale about my boy Shackleton. Hopefully you guys... Uh, yeah, before right. before we get into Shackleton, we might have to fight these people soon. <laughs> I'm trying to bang on the wall to tell them to quiet down a little bit. I can hear them, the whole conversation going right through my head. I mean, the more you talk about it, the more it's going to bother you. Just ignore <laughs> it. He's not wrong, though. I mean, they are being carry excessively on. loud. For no reason. Hey, we could be louder with our door open. <laughs> well, then they would just... Their conversation would come up in our episode. So, who's really winning then? True. You do got a point. Exactly. All right, but, you know, before... We're not going to waste any more time. Uh, unless anybody else got something they want to say real quick, we're going to dive on into this. You guys good? All right, let's go. All right. Uh, so... Ernest Shackleton was born February 15th, 1874 in Killakia County, Kildare, Ireland. His father, Henry Shackleton, uh, tried to enter the British Army, but due to his poor health, uh, was prevented from doing so. He became a farmer instead, settling in Kilkia. The Shackleton family are of English origin, specifically from Yorkshire, Yorkshire. Yorkshire. Abraham Shackleton, an English Quaker, moved to Ireland in 1726 and started a school at Ballator, County Kildare. Shackleton's mother, Henrietta Letitia Sophia Gavin, Jesus, that's a mouthful, (laughs) uh, was descended from the Fitzmaurice family. Ernest was the second of their ten children. Holy fuck. Can you imagine pushing out 10 kids? Man, they were getting busy, boy. You know, boy, if you think about it, back then, 
Yeah, back then they didn't really have. Back to, yeah, back they then have, like, they had like sheep sheepskin condoms and shit. <laughs> no, like you know, they didn't have like, no abor- contraceptives. Yeah, there wasn't an abortion back then. Bet you a lot of people had to clap. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> no, I'm sure that's probably a normal thing. If you didn't have the clap back then, they probably didn't talk to you. Uh, look or, at you, funny. Yeah. Or or have lice on your pubic area? Oh, oh god. god! Come on, that was too far. Ah, <laughs> uh, but yeah, Ernest was the second of their ten children and the first of their two sons. The second, Frank, achieved notoriety as a suspect, later exonerated. And the 1907 theft of the the so-called Irish crown jewels, which have never been recovered. Wow. That's pretty cool. Interesting. Right. And then uh, in 1880, when Ernest was six, Henry Shackleton gave up his life as a landowner to study medicine at Trinity College, Dublin, moving his family to the city. Four years later, the family moved again from Ireland to Sydenham in suburban London. Partly, this was in search of better professional prospects for the newly qualified doctor, but another factor may have been unease about their Anglo-Irish ancestry. Following the assassination by Irish nationalists of Lord Frederick Cavendish, the British Chief Secretary for Ireland in 1882, however, Shackleton took lifelong pride in his Irish roots and frequently declared, I am an Irishman. Hell yeah. Hell I can yeah. relate to that. Yeah. We can all relate to that. Hell right. yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, so that that's just a little rundown of, you know, his coming up. Uh, he did... His early lore. Yeah, he was, uh... He was schooled by a governess until the age of 11 when he began at Firth Lodge Preparatory School in West Hill Dulwich in East, Southeast London. At the age of 13, he un- entered Dulwich College. Fucking Shackleton, man. Look at this guy, 13. <laughs> the young Shackleton did not particularly distinguish himself as a scholar and was said to be bored by his studies. <laughs> I feel that. Uh, then he was later quoted as saying, I never learned much geography at school. Literature, too, consisted in the dissection, the parsing, the analysing, of certain passages from our great poets and pro- prose writers, teachers should be very careful not to spoil their pupils' taste for poetry for all time by making it a task and imposition. In his final term at school, he was still able to re- to achieve fifth place in his class of 31. He's He's got a very elegant manner of speaking. Yeah. Shit. I, I kind of dig it. Yeah, the way he talks about things is like, you know, Oh, it feels it's like he's very passionate about everything he does. He speaks with like a a passion behind his words, which yeah. is cool. Uh he also joined he was also a merchant navy officer. He joined uh he joined 60 he left at 16 to go to sea, which you know Fuck, most 16-year-olds these days you tell them they're going off to sea they probably shit their pants <laughs> or, or cry or say we're not them. They don't have Fortnite at sea. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, the options were available were a Royal Navy cadet ship at Britannia, which Shackleton could not afford, the Mercantile Marine cadet ships Worcester and Conway, or an apprenticeship before the mast 
on a sailing vessel. The third option was chosen. And this is when Ernest Shackleton began his love for, you know, exploring, being on ships, you know. Uh, He was at sea for four years, and while he was there, he learned his trade, visiting the far corners of the earth and forming acquaintances with a variety of people for many walks of life, learning to be at home with all kinds of men. In August 1894, he passed his examination for second mate and accepted a post as third officer on a tramp steamer of the Welshire Lane. Nice. Two years later, he had obtained his first mate's ticket, and in 1898, he was certified as a master mariner, qualifying him to command a British ship anywhere in the world. That's awesome, man. Yeah. Dude's making moves. Hell yeah, he ain't wasting no time. Uh, Then in 1898, the same year as, you know, giving him the job of taking any ship he wants, Shackleton joined Union Castle Line, the regular mail and passenger carrier between Southampton and Cape Town. He was, as a shipmate recorded, a departure from our usual type of young officer. Content with his own company, though not aloof, spouting lines from Keats and Browning, a mixture of sensitivity and aggression, but with withal, sympathetic. Following the outbreak of the Boer War in 1899, Shackleton transferred to troop ship Tintagel Castle, where in March 1900 he met an army lieutenant, Cedric Longstaff, whose father, Lewin W. Longstaff, was the main financial backer of the National Antarctic Expedition then being organized in London. Nice. Long staffing. This is where <laughs> this is uh, the National Antarctic Expedition. This is the first. Uh, this is the first expedition that um, Ernest Shackleton ever went on. Um, before you go on, did he was was he knighted? Was he knighted before he went on his big ass excursion? Um, I'm not sure because he's like. I think it was after he got back from his first expedition, I believe. Because I know, I know the only, only way you get knighted is from the Queen or the King of England. That's probably the time it was the King. Yeah, I'm not sure when he was knighted. Uh, I'm sure we'll find out once we go a little farther on. But I am not sure off the top of my head. Um, as soon as you continue, sir, I, I could look it up for you if you want. Oh, uh, um... In nineteen between nineteen oh nine and nineteen fourteen, uh, Shackleton returned home from one of his expeditions. King Edward received him on July tenth and raised him to a commander of the Royal Victorian Order. In the King's birthday honors list in November, he was made a knight, becoming Sir Shackleton. Sir oh, sweet. Shackleton. Yeah, so I think that was after the Discovery expedition. That was after both. His expedition to discovery oh, both and of them, the Nimrod, okay. yes, sir, and Nimrod. <laughs> but uh, yeah, speaking of that, we'll dive a little in real quick. Go over a little bit of uh, this discovery expedition, which is the first one he ever went on. This one he was not in charge of. This one he had worked under somebody else. But the Nimrod was his first, where he was the captain. Solo, was his yeah. first, nice. Yo, so, um, yeah, yeah. Remember when we were younger, we used to call each other Nimrods. <laughs> yeah, stupid Nimrod. Yeah, well the. Yeah. The expedition was named the Nimrod Expedition because that was the name of the boat at the time. And that's what a lot of them, that's what they did back then a lot of, you know, the name of their boat would be the name of their expedition. I think Nimrod was the guy that, uh, in the Bible, did the Tower of Babel. Yeah, that's where where the saying comes from. 
being a Nimrod. <laughs> you know, I had I had another joke, but I didn't realize. Um, this is Dale Gribble from Keenan Hill. <laughs> he went from Rusty's Shackleton. I'm like, oh, I'm going to use this as a joke. Then I realized the last name is spelled different. I can't use it no more. I just had to say it now before uh, Cheeto was like, shut the fuck up. And then uh, that's funny. They used the guy that uh, flew, flew the when all that shit was going down with Epstein. Uh, a YouTube channel popped up with drone footage over the island, and the username was Rusty Shackleton, and it was a picture of Dale. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I know, I know. This is uh, about Ernest, Sir Ernest. But how funny his name would be? Like, huh? What's your other name? She said, if he ever runs away, his name's gonna be Rodrigo Churio because his father made the Churios. <laughs> Damn right. <laughs> Best getaway name. Uh, anyways, um. The Discovery Expedition, which lasted from 1901 to 1903, was known as the Discovery Expedition after the ship Discovery, and it was the brainchild of Sir Clements Markham, president of the Royal Geographical Society, and had been in preparation for many years. It was led by Robert Falcon Scott, a Royal Navy torpedo lieutenant lately promoted to commander and had objectives that included scientific and geographical discovery. Although discovery was not a Royal Navy unit, Scott required the crew, officers, and scientific staff to submit to the conditions of the Naval Discipline Act and the ship and expedition were run on Royal Navy lines. Shackleton accepted this, even though his own background and instincts favored a different, more formal type of leadership. Shackleton's particular duties were listed as in charge of seawater analysis, ward worm caterer, in charge of holds, stores, and provisions. He also arranges the entertainments. Damn, he's got a lot on this plate. Yeah. Man, more than I got. It's definitely interesting, though, that they, they made a point to put in here that Ernest Shackleton had a very different type of leadership because that'll come in, you'll see what that leadership is a little later on in the story. And if I had to choose who I'm going on a journey with, I'm probably choosing Ernest Shackleton. How about, how about D.B. Cooper? D.B. Cooper, we don't even know if he fucking survived. He could be dead. <laughs> he could have died after he jumped. I heard rumors that he might be alive. Okay, are we talking about D.B. Cooper right now, or are we talking about Ernest Shackleton? <laughs> Stick to the script, man. Come on. <laughs> uh, the Discovery departed London on July 31st, 1901, arriving at the Aaron... Antarctic coast via Cape Town and New Zealand. On January 8, 1902, after landing, Shackleton took part in an experimental balloon flight on February 4th, which I believe... Sick. Which I'm guessing that has... It's basically mean like hot air balloon, maybe? Like yeah, maybe the yeah, first I ever think hot so. air balloon. That's what I was thinking, yeah. Which is pretty cool. He also participated with the scientists Edward Adrian Wilson and Harley, Hartley T. Ferrer, in the first sledging trip from the expedition's winter quarters in McMurdo Sound, a journey which established a safe route to the Great Ice Barrier. During the Antarctic winter of 1902, in the confines of the Iceton Discovery, Shackleton edited the expedition's magazine, the, Solar Pol- the South Polar Times. Nice. So when they, you know, while they're out there, on this journey, their boat had been iced in. And, I mean, they had been stuck for a little bit. So, <clears throat> it also said that 
Shackleton was the most popular of the officers among the crew, being a good mixer between the, you know, both sides. Uh, the party set out on November 2nd, 1902. The march was, Scott wrote later, a combination of success and failure. A record farthest south latitude of 80 degrees, or 82 degrees, 17 uh, inches, I believe, was reached. <laughs> 17 inches. Beating the previous record established in 1900 by Karsten uh, Borch Grenovic. Nice. Good job. That was pretty but, close. Yeah. Man, I'll butcher that name. That's the journey a, that's was. name. The journey was marred by the poor performance of the dogs whose food had become tainted and who rapidly fell sick. All 22 dogs died during the march. Ah, how tragic, dude. The three men all suffered at times of snow blindness, frostbite, and ultimately scurvy. Scurvy, ugh, fuck. On the return journey, Shackleton had his own omission to broken down, by his own omission broken down and could no longer carry out his share of the work. Yeesh, times are getting tough out there, huh? Mm-hmm. It's not easy. Oh, fuck no. Uh, Later, Shackleton had denied Scott's claims in the voyage of the Discovery that he had been carried on the sledge. He was in seriously weakened condition. Wilson's diary entry for January 14th reads, Shackleton has been anything but up to the mark, and today he is decidedly worse. Very short-winded and coughing constantly with more serious symptoms that need to be detailed here, but which are no, of no small consequence, 160 miles from the ship. Yikes. Jesus. On February 4th, 1903, the, finally, the party finally reached the ship. After medical examination, which proved con- inconclusive, Scott decided to send Shackleton home on a relief ship morning, which had arrived in McMurdo Sound in January 1903. Scott wrote, he ought to not risk further hardship in the present state of health. There is now there is conjecture that Scott's motive from removing him was resentment of Shackleton's popularity and that ill health was used as an excuse to get rid of him. How fucking dirty, man. What a shisty man this dude was. Yeah, so he's probably like, oh, we're going to get, you know, this, this oh. thing's going to be... It's going to be huge. We're going to get all this recognition, but I don't want Shackleton. Yeah, any. he's like, he's like, oh, this guy's getting a little shine. Oh, I'll take care of that. Uh, I'll poison his ass. All right, I wouldn't go that far, but. Years after the death of Scott, Wilson and Shackleton, Albert Amritage, and the expedition's second in command claimed that there had been a falling out on the southern journey and that Scott had told the ship's doctor that if he does not go back sick, he will go back in disgrace. There is no corroboration of Armitage's story. Shackleton and Scott stayed on friendly terms, at least until the publication of Scott's account of the southern journey in the voyage of discovery. Although in public they remained mutually respectful and cordial, according to a biographer, Ronald Roland Huntford, Shackleton's attitude to Scott turned to smoldering scorn and dislike. Salvage of wounded pride required a return to the Antarctic and attempt to outdo Scott. Nice. So now, now he's got that fire burning. Yo. You ain't gonna beat me, son. So you ain't beat me. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go farther. Be more gangster about this shit. Yeah. Now he's like, all right. If you want to send me back because you hate that people like me more, now I'm gonna beat your record, and I'm gonna go farther than you could. But uh, I'm not gonna go too deep into this because you know I want to get a little further on to the story, but. Uh, during 1903 and 1907, 
Shackleton did some shore work. Uh, I believe it was around this time where he met his wife, Emily Dorman, who I guess back then was a looker. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> questionable. <laughs> the jury's out. Shackle, uh, on August, 14, August 4th, 1907, <coughs> Shackleton was appointed a member of the Royal Victorian Order, fourth class. Uh, and then here comes the Nimrod Expedition. And Nimrod. <laughs> which lasts from 1907 to 1909. This is the this is the first expedition that Shackleton put together himself. And this is the one where he was going to make a new record of uh you know, it kind of in spite of Scott. Uh and on January 19 January 1st, 1908, the Nimrod set off on the British British Antarctic expedition from Wydleton Harbor, New Zealand. Shackleton's original plans had envisioned had invaged using the old Discovery Base in McMurdo Sound to launch his attempts to the South Pole and South Magnetic Pole. Before leaving England, he had been pressured to give an undertaking to Scott that he would not base himself in the McMurdo area, which Scott was claiming as his own field of work. Shackleton reluctantly agreed to work for winter quarters at either Barrier Inlet, which Discovery had previously visited in 1902, or King Edward Land. So this guy, Scott's like, oh, if you're going on your journey, you're not going to stay where I fucking stayed. Because fuck you, bud. <laughs> uh, then to conserve on coal, the ship was towed 1,650 miles, or 2,655 2, kilometers, Jesus. by the steamer Cunha to the Antarctic ice. After Shackleton had pursued, persuaded the New Zealand government and Union Steamship Company to share the coast, share the cost... In accordance with Shackleton's promise to Scott, the ship headed for the eastern sector of the Great Ice Barrier, arriving there on January 1st, 1908. They found that the barrier inlet had expanded to form a large bay in which were hundreds of whales, which led to the immediate christening of the area as the Bay of Whales. Awesome, man. That's pretty cool. I'd love to see that. Right. There's a lot of stuff in this story that you're going to see, and you're going to be like, fuck, I would have loved to be there. Because, you know, for the most part, a lot of it sounds so fucking cool. Yeah, it does. Uh, But around the same time, it was noted that the ice conditions were unstable, precluding the establishment of safe base there. An extended search for an anchorage at King Edward Land proved equally fruitless, so Shackleton was forced to break his undertaking to Scott and set sail for McMurdo Sound, a decision which, according to Second Officer Arthur Harbord, was dictated by common sense in view of difficulties of ice pressure, coal shortage, and the lack of any near-known base. <clears throat> uh, the Nimrod landed, arrived at McMurdo Sound on January 29th, but was stopped by ice 16 miles north of Discovery's old base at Hut Point. After consider Considerable weather delays, Shackleton's base was eventually established at Cape Royds, about 24 miles north of Hut Point. The party was in high spirits, despite difficult conditions. Shackleton's ability to communicate with each man kept the party happy and focused. So, I mean, you could already tell how great of a leader Shackleton is, because he's keep you know... Any other people would be like, oh, you know, this fucking sucks. You were in all this shit, but... Yeah, he's keeping the morale yeah. high. Yeah, he's somehow, going, he's talking know? to every man. He's telling him, hey, you know, this is... We're doing it. We're good. 
So everybody's like, fuck, yeah, man. I'm happy. I'm happy to be here, you know? Well, things, yeah. things are going to get better. But they didn't get better, so. <laughs> Jeez, <laughs> womp, womp, womp. Uh, the original journey, which they had called the Great Southern Journey, which was titled that by Frank Wilde. That was one of the men of the crew. Uh, was to get to the South Pole, to be the first people to to get to the South Pole, to discover the South Pole, uh, to be the first one to just travel on the South Polar Plateau. Uh, the return to McMurdo was a race against starvation and half rations for much of the way. At one point, Shackleton gave his one allowed biscuit for the day to the ailing Frank Wilde, who wrote in his diary, all of the money that was ever minted would not have bought that biscuit and the remembrance of that sacrifice will never leave me. <laughs> oh, so, I mean, at this point, Frank Wilde's indebted to Ernest Shackleton for the rest of his life, basically. Because Shackleton gave up his own food to save Frank Wilde. And they do go on to be friends for a very long time after this, so. Boss move. Yeah. Uh, the expedition's other main accomplishments included the first ascent of Mount Erebus, and discovery of the approximate location of the South Magnetic Pole. Shackleton returned to the United Kingdom as a hero, and soon afterwards published his expedition account, Heart of the Antarctic. Emily Shackleton later recorded, The only comment he made to me about not reaching the pole was, A live donkey is better than a dead lion, isn't it? And I said, Yes, darling, as far as I'm concerned. A little bit on Mount Erebus. Uh, yes. it, it's the highest active volcano in in Antarctica and the southernmost anti-active volcano uh, on Earth. It is the sixth highest ultra mountain on the continent with a summit elevation of 3,794 meters. It is located in the Ross Dependency on Ross Island, which is also home to three inactive volcanoes, Mount Terror, Mount Bird, and Mount Terra Nova. Jesus. Yeah. So, you know, and then like we said, when he uh when he returned home from that, that's when he was knighted and became Sir Ernest Shackleton. Uh but not long after his immediate return from that, he had already started planning his next expedition. Uh and, you know, that's what became uh, he's he's a public hero at this point. Yeah, yeah I mean, he, people are looking up to him and shit, you know. Yeah. They they think he's like, he's like the big cheese around then, you know. You got to have a lot of respect for these guys for in a time where they didn't have a lot of technology, a lot of uh, of, the, of the things that we take for granted today, today, but they still managed to do like incredible things. Yeah, you know? when they were, when they went during the endurance expedition, their GPS was basically this one guy mapping out the entire journey. Oh, it's insane, dude. Yeah, the way they... And, like, the only reason we know so much about it today is because these guys all kept diaries of everything that happened. They he's, mapped out everything completely. I imagine he's probably just using the stars. Oh, yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of that, too, yeah. Yeah, they're just fucking watching the stars and fucking gauging the movement by, you know, how, how far fucking this star moved in a, yeah. in a week or fucking what, you know. And Ernest Shackleton himself shit. had a compass, had one compass that he used for every expedition. <laughs> Insane. Which but, that compass was actually, that family remained, that compass remained in the family after he died. Oh, I bet. Like his ancestors in like the 2000s had that compass. Family heirloom, yeah. yeah. It became Jeez. like a big thing. The one compass that lead them all. 
<laughs> but around yeah, around this time, this is when you know they'd started preparing in 1914. He had started preparing for the endurance expedition, which would be Ernest Shackleton's final expedition. Um, at the time, it was named the Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition. There is legend that says Shackleton's newspaper article was written a certain way so that he could better narrow down and select candidates for his expedition. Two ships would be employed. Endurance would carry the main party into the Weddell Sea, which I was telling the guys before we started recording. The reason that Ernest Shackleton chose the Endurance ship is because of his family's motto, which was, by endurance we conquer. So it was kind of like fate to him, basically. Pretty sweet. Yeah, so they thought it was kind of fate that, you know, his ship was named after his family's uh, motto. I was watching something on YouTube today about about it. Um, The one crew was was going from uh, New Zealand, and the other one was coming from Africa or something, or, or South America. And yeah, Cape Town. Yeah, I remember them saying that. I was like, holy shit. Uh, yeah, it's nuts. Yeah, there was a second ship, the Aurora, would take a supporting party under Captain Aeneas McTonish, McIntosh to McMurdo Sound on the opposite side of the continent. This party would then lay supply depots across the Great Ice Barrier. Far as the Beardmore Glacier, these depots would, food, would hold the food and fuel that would enable Shackleton's party to complete their journey of 1,800 miles, or 1,800 miles, or 2,900 kilometers across the continent. And at the time, nobody had ever done this before. They they wanted to be the first ones to ever do it. Yeah, this is like a massive undertaking, man. Yeah. And Shackleton had used his considerable fundraising skills, and the expedition was financed largely by private donors, although the British government gave them 10,000 pounds about 900,000 pounds in 2019 terms. Holy shit. Yeah, Scottish jute magnate Sir James Caird gave 24,000 pounds. Midlands industrious industrialist Frank Dudley Docker gave 10,000. And tobacco Harris heiress Janet Steincom Willis gave an undisclosed but reportedly generous sum. Public interest in the expedition was considerable. Shackleton received more than 5,000 applications to join his crew. It's incredible. Because, man, these these guys were literally mapping the earth, dude. They're going to the unknown where people have never been. Can you imagine that? And not only that, but they know that if they succeed, they'll be be, part of history. Oh, you're going down to history forever. That was during World War I. like, you guys get the opportunity to go kill yourselves or go kill yourselves in the cold. That's, that's what well, that, that's the thing, is when they first started to set out for the journey, when they had found out that, you know, about the war starting, Ernest Shackleton himself said, I, you know, I want to give up the expedition and I want to go fight for the army. And he told his crew, he said, I'll only make the decision if we all agree on it. His entire crew all agreed unanimously, let's give up the expedition and let's go fight for the war. But the only reason they didn't is because the British government told them not to. Asked them not to. They asked them to go on the expedition instead. So that's why they did. That's pretty sweet. Because, like, the British government knew, like, yo, these people are the first ones to do it. We're going to get some of that hit. We're going to be some part of that history, too. Oh, yeah. This is going to be huge for us. And then when you you find these places, you get to name them and shit. So 
Yeah, so despite the art- outbreak of the First World War on th- August 3rd, 1914, Erna- Endurance was directed by the First Lord of Admiralty, Winston Churchill, to proceed. Winston Churchill gave these guys the fucking okay to proceed. Jeez. Can you believe that? Yo, I bet the conversation, hey, uh, hey uh, Ernest, um, I know you want to do something crazy, but do it for, do it for Britain. We find good tea over there, let us know. <laughs> yeah, and they left the British waters August 8th. Shackleton delayed his own departure until September 27th, meeting the ship in Buenos Aires. But real quick, now we're going to go, we're going to give you guys a little rundown of the crew that Ernest Shackleton had put together for some this fam- journey. Some familiar names in this one here. Mm-hmm. First, obviously, uh, Ernest Shackleton, the expedition leader. Uh, third lieutenant in charge of holds, stores, provisions, and deep water. Oh yeah, that's uh, sorry, that was from the that was from the Discovery expedition. Then there was oh familiar name Frank Wild. Yep. Second in command, the unknown giant of the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. Frank Wild played a significant role in several of the most important expeditions. Being on board when the Discovery sailed from McMurdo Sound in 1901, so heralding start of 20 years of expor- epic exploration and adventure. No one else was so involved and no other explorer spent so long in Antarctica. Wow. So Frank Wilde was huge in this history yeah. of this stuff. Hey, check out this next guy. Uh, meteorologist. See? You see the meteorologist? Oh, yeah. Okay, I see. I see what you're talking about. Oh, oh yeah, that's, that's a pretty... that's a weather man, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Never mind. What did you think it was? I was just thinking it was like a fucking astrologer looking <laughs> at the stars. Fucking. <laughs> then the uh, the next guy they have is Frank Worsley, who was the captain, because uh, Ernest Shackleton, it was his expedition, but the captain of his boat was Frank Worsley, who a little later on near the end of this episode you're going to hear. Uh, about Frank Worsley again. Uh, that's all I'm going to tell you guys. I don't want to give nothing away. He uh, has seventy healthy dogs. All right, can you calm down, pump your brakes over there? <laughs> we still got to get through the people, my guy. Uh, then we have First Officer Lionel Greenstreet, who had served in the Merchant Navy and joined the Endurance just 24 hours before it left. Wow. Uh, then we have Herbert T. Hudson, a navigator. The best penguin catcher, a skill of great value during the time. What? Yeah, he was great at catching penguins, man. <laughs> what the fuck? What oh. do they need penguins Oh, for? you'll find out. Don't worry. <laughs> you'll find out. Uh, then we have Thomas Crean, second officer, an experienced seaman, <laughs> and highly respected Antarctic hand. Uh, then we have Albert B. Cheatham, third officer, <laughs> an old Antarctic hand, on his fourth trip south with the Endurance, Cheatham was ever cheerful and ever popular, one of the oldest men on the Endurance, at 47. Uh, Lewis Rickinson, first engineer, volunteered for a trip to Antarctica despite a particular aversion to the cold. So he fucking hated the cold, but he went anyways. <laughs> Badass. Hmm. Oh, you forgot about the cat. Okay. I'm reading through the people, my man. Can you slow down over there? Jesus. I'm going to have to come punch you in the face in a second. 
Uh, Alexander G. Kerr, second engineer. Then we have D- Dr. Alexander H. Macklin, who I don't know if it's just me, but this kind of guy, this guy kind of reminds me, kind of looks like Teddy Roosevelt a little bit to me. <laughs> you guys tell me. What do you guys think? This guy right here. Is he kind of like Teddy Roosevelt? Oh, absolutely, bro. They could have been twins. Yeah, oh, a little skinnier. Yeah, they could have been twins, bro. That's what I thought it was when I first read it. I'm like, fuck, man. They had Teddy Roosevelt here? Uh, then they have another surgeon, Dr. James A. Mickelroy. Uh, geologist, James M. Wordy. <coughs> uh, oh, this guy, the geologist, even gave some of his own money to Shackleton to fund the endurance journey. Uh, then we have another meteorologist, Leonard D.A. Hussey. Uh, the reason that Shackleton... It was Shackleton's smallest man on the expedition. And the reason that Shackleton took him is because he said he looked funny. <laughs> hey, got him on, right? Yeah, Reginald W. James, physicist. Gentle Jimmy is what they called him. Uh, then we had Robert S. Clark, biologist. Uh, and then James Francis Frank Hurley, uh, official photographer. This is the guy who basically, you know, he'd like, uh, he's like the reason why there's still all these pictures today, if everything. George E. Marston, an official artist. James, or Thomas Ordy Lees, a motor expert and storekeeper. Henry McNish, carpenter. Uh, and Shackleton had wrote about him saying that's the only man he's not dead certain of. Uh, Charles J. Green, a cook. Walter Ernest Howe, able seaman. Yeah, seaman. William Backwell, able seaman. Timothy McCarthy. Whoa, what? We got to talk to Kathleen. <laughs> able seaman. Hey, you know, there's just a bunch of other able seamen. I don't have to go through every single one of them. But I mean, they're a rough and rowdy crew, man. But yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, man. Now I know you want to talk about the animals. Go ahead. Uh, he had uh, 70 healthy dogs. Uh, mm. There was a male cat named uh, Mrs. Chopper. Chirpy. Chirpy. Uh, oh, yeah. Check out this guy, uh, Perch Blackborough, who was a Welsh sailor that stowed away on the journey. Although Shackleton was annoyed by this, there was no reason to turn back by the time that the situation was discovered and Blackboro was made a steward. So he just fucking jumped aboard, bro. Fuck it. I know. I know. <laughs> oh, man. Fuck the war. I'm going on this boat. That's pretty sick. Yeah, so uh, now we got the crew. And now their intention was to cross the Antarctic continent from one coast to the other via the South Pole. And the event... The main expedition never set foot on continental Antarctica. And then, you know, we'll, we'll dive a little bit into this, this expedition real quick. Give me a second. I gotta find my place. So, yeah, the point was to set out from the Weddell Sea and, you know, make the journey from there. But while they're in the Weddell Sea, you know, during the about halfway through the journey, they end up getting stuck in the ice. So, what the fuck? So, 
Yeah. The Endurance was anchored off South End August 4th, 1914. Hold on. I'm sorry, guys. I lost my place. Oh, yeah. On August 8th, the Endurance sailed for the Antarctic via Buenos Aires and the sub-Antarctic island of South Georgia where there was a Norwegian whaling station. It was thought that the war would be over within six months, so when it came time to leave for the South, they left with no regrets. On November 5th, 1914, they arrived at South Georgia. Shackleton learned much from the whaling captains about the conditions between there and the Weddell Sea, which indicated that this was a particularly heavy ice year. The plan had been to only spend a few days collecting stores, but instead the Endurance remained at South Georgia for a month to allow the ice further south to disperse. This month was one where bonds of friendship and mutual respect were formed between the Endurance crew and Norwegian whalers, bonds that were to prove unexpectedly useful sometime later to Shackleton and his men. Uh, the Weddell Sea was known to be particularly icebound at the best of times, and the Endurance left with a deck load of coal in addition to normal stores to help with the extra load on the engines when it came to pushing through a pack ice in the Weddell Sea to the Antarctic continent beyond. Extra clothing and stores were taken from South Georgia in the event that the Endurance may have to winter in the ice if caught in the Weddell Sea as it froze. Unable to reach the continent first, they left South Georgia on 5th of November, 5th of December, 1914. So here we go. We're starting it now, man. Uh, hold on. Sorry. So yeah, they headed, they headed through the Weddell Sea. Mm. And that's when they got, not far in, they got trapped. Their boat got stuck in the ice. Beset in pack ice disaster and adventure to try and leach land and eventually temporary reprieve. We had reached the head of the Weddell Sea, but impenetrable barriers of old ice frustrated pro- further progress. For two days and nights, every endeavor was made to cut the ship free, but the temperature continued to fall, and the ice, which was broken, froze again, and in matters in the end were worse than before February 14, 1915. As time wore on, it became more and more evident that the ship was doomed. Endurance among ice pinnacles... Oh, sorry, that was for the picture. <laughs> this is from Frank Worley's diary. During the night, take flashlight of ship be beset by pressure. This necess- necessitated some 20 flashes and one behind each salient pressure ham- hummock. No less than 10 flashes behind required to satisfactorily illuminate the ship herself, half-blinded, after the successive flashes, I lost my bearings in Miss Hummocks, bumping shins against projecting ice points and stumbling into the deep snow drifts. Hmm. So yeah, around this time, they had started... The ship had been stuck in the Weddell Sea for a while now, and it was only becoming more and more obvious that it wasn't going to... You know, it was going to be stuck there. Hold on, my bad. So, that's when Shackleton came up with the idea, you know, to get his men off the boat and get them at, well, the boat had sprung a leak because of the ice. The ice had broke through, and they'd got a leak in their boat after being able to patch it, but 
then Ernest was like, I mean, at this point, Ernest basically knew that the 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 um the boat was pretty much gone. You know the yeah. They said that when when spring arrived, the breaking of the ice, uh, it put extreme pressures on the ship's hull. Um, bef- up until that point, Shackleton thought that uh, when the ship was released from the, lo- the ice, they could work their way back towards uh, Vassal Bay. But on the 24th of October, water began pouring in. And after a few days at the position of 69 degrees south latitude, um, Shackleton gave the order to abandon sh- ship, saying she's going down. And men, provisions, and equipment were transferred to camps that they had set up on the ice. Yes. And then on November 21st, 1915, the the endurance had finally slipped beneath the surface, and she was gone. And I remember uh, reading somewhere that at this point, Shackleton had looked back and saw the endurance sink, and he knew then that their new journey, it was no longer about reaching the South Pole. Their new journey now was about surviving, about getting his men home safely. Tragically, during the midst of all this, I believe that they shot They the did cat. that, they shot yeah, Mrs. They shot Chirpy. Miss, Miss, Mrs. Chirpy, thinking because she wouldn't be able to. Yes. So, I mean, like Chup had said, they had set up, you got to understand, they weren't on solid ground at this point. They were literally floating around on ice packs. Like packs of ice, and that's where their camps were. The fucking because they're in the middle. Guys, they're in the middle of the ocean. You know I mean they're in the middle of the Weddell Sea? They had no other choice. And not only in the middle of the ocean, fucking the middle of nowhere. There's there's not a lot of help out out there. Bro. Oh yeah, none at all back <laughs> but like, then. But like nine hundred miles away. Yeah, back yeah, then there was there was dude. no help at all because you know a lot of people would at the whaling station. A lot of people had been telling them don't go on the expedition. You know what I mean? Because. Out here around this time, the ice is bad, but they, you know, they didn't listen. Ernest thought that they could do it. And, I mean, it's no fault to him, you know. I mean, he was... He was a dreamer, man, yeah, you know. Was... There's nothing wrong with that. But uh, for almost two months, Shackleton and his party camped on a large, flat foal, hoping that it would drift towards Pallet Island, approximately 250 miles away, where it was known that stores were cached. After failed attempts to march across the ice to this island... Shackleton decided to set up a more permanent camp, Patience Camp, they called it, on another flow. That's a good name for it. And trust <laughs> to the drift of the ice to make them towards to take them towards a safe landing. By March 17th, their ice camp was within 60 miles of Pallet Island. However, separated by impassable ice, they were unable to reach it. On April 9th, their ice flow broke into two, and Shackleton ordered the crew into the lifeboats and to head for the nearest island. After five narrowing days at sea, or harrowing days at sea, the exhausted men landed the three lifeboats at Elephant Island, 346 miles from where the Endurance sank. This was the first time they had stood on solid ground for 497 days. Jeez, man. And when, oh, hold on. And when they had got, when they had found the, the island, just to show you what kind of man Shackleton is, he wanted the first person to touch foot on the island to be the man who got frostbite on his feet. So, But he ended up not being able to walk on his own, so he became one of the first men to step foot on solid ground. Can you imagine not being on solid... Not knowing if you're going to survive 
for 497 days. Like, the ice could have just broken any time. They could all just died right That's there. That's insane, dude. To not know that you're going to be safe for that long is insane. Uh, Shackleton was on ice for over nine months. Abandoned ship, ocean camp, asylums. He uh, told the men, each man of 27, to drop all but two pounds of personal possessions. Yeah, they can only wow. take with them what was important because at that point it was about survival. It was no longer about getting to the South Pole. It was about surviving. That was the only thing on his mind was surviving and getting his men home safely. Another thing that speaks to his character, um, he said that he gave his mittens to photographer Frank Hurley, who had lost his during the boat journey. As a result of that, Shackleton also suffered frostbitten fingers. I mean, that's a honestly one of the biggest things behind why I love this story so much is not because of, you know, like what how it turned out. It's just because of like what kind of man Ernest Shackleton was. For sure. That's the kind of men that we people that we need more of these days. Absolutely. A guy who puts himself before his people. Or I mean puts his people before himself. You right. know what I mean? It's a great that's why they call this story a great story of heroism and leadership. Because that's basically what it was. But uh Oh, we'll get back to that. Um, <laughs> Elephant Island was an inhospitable place, hospitable place, far from any shipping routes. Rescue by any means of chance discovery was very unlikely. C- consequently, Shackleton decided to risk an open boat journey to the 720 nautical mile distant South Georgia whaling stations, where he knew help was available. The strongest of the tiny 20-foot lifeboats christened James Carrard after the expedition's chief sponsor, was chosen for the trip. Ship's carpenter, Harry McNish, made various improvements, including raising the sides, strengthening the keel, building a makeshift desk deck of wooden canvas, and sealing the work with oil paint and seal blood. Because at this point, while they're staying on Elephant Island, and even when they're on the, the ice falls, they had begun to run out of rations, so they had to start killing penguins and eating them. They had also, unfortunately, had to kill all of their sled dogs and eat their sled dogs as well. That's how bad things got out there. But one of the cool things that I found out the other day is while they're on Elephant Island, one of the other, um, one of their other, uh, one of their other crew, one of the people of the crew, he was known as like going off on his own and kind of doing his own thing, which always worried Shackleton a lot. But at one point. They remember hearing him screaming, running back, and they look behind him. There's a fucking giant leopard seal chasing him. Holy shit. And they ended up killing a leopard seal, and they got to feed on that for a little bit. Yeah. Nice. But they knew that that meat wouldn't last very long because there's no way to, you know, properly store it. Gotcha. So, it was crazy. But, yeah. Yo, Troop, I was arguing with him. was like, leprosy. He's like, dude, I don't know you're talking about leprosy. Like, <laughs> no, man, leprosy. He's like, leprosy. He's like, man, you talking about big seals? Yeah, the big seals. Uh, <laughs> Interesting fact uh, about those leopard seats. <laughs> you don't even funny. know what you said, leopard seats. You didn't even say it right. I'll give it a Their bite force could crush a human skull. Wow. I literally told you that on the way here. Shut, shut the fuck up. I won't put my two cents in. <laughs> uh, for this journey, thank, uh, Shackleton chose five companions, Frank Worsley, the endurance's captain, who would be responsible for navigation, Tom Crean, 
who had begged to go, <laughs> two strong sailors and John Vincent and Timothy McCarthy, and finally the carpenter McNish, who, fun fact about McNish, they had actually gotten into a fight on the way to finding Elephant Island. McNish. He had actually gotten into a fight. He actually, at one point, had sat down and said that he wasn't moving any farther because he didn't want to go. And Shackleton basically just told him to get his ass up and move, and he did. <laughs> yeah. So that's pretty funny. Yeah. That, that's like uh, that's like getting a loser getting in a big-ass fight. It's like, we ain't moving. And the one guy's like, uh, we need to move. I was like, no, fuck you guys. Yeah, uh, McNish had clashed with Shackleton during the time when the party was stranded on the ice, but while Shackleton did not forget the Carpenter's earlier insubordination, Shackleton recognized his value for his particular job. Not only did Shackleton recognize their value for the job, but he also, because he knew the potential risk they were to morale, this allowed Shackleton to remain in control of the morale while of his crew members, and the attitudes of his men were a point of emphasis in leading his men back to safety. So the reason why, not only did he take Manish with him because of his carpentry skills, but he took him with him because he knew that if he stayed there, he'd bring down the morale of his men. And Shackleton didn't want that. He wanted his men to stay positive and keep morale high. So, uh, and then Shackleton refused to pack supplies for more than four weeks, knowing that if they did not reach South Georgia within that time, the boat and its crew would be lost. The James Caird was launched on April 24, 1916. During the next 15 days, it sailed through the waters of the southern ocean at the mercy of the stormy seas in constant peril of capsizing. And to get around... They had, a, like, a mountain in front of them. To get around that mountain, they had to go through this thing that is called the Drake Passage. And it's, like, uh, it's like a folklore for know, being known as, like, being very dangerous. It's a, it's a body of water between South America's Cape Horn, Chile, and the South Shetland Islands of Antarctica. And it's known for being very, very dangerous. But I guess nowadays it's, you know, known as not being as scary. But obviously back then they didn't know a lot about it. So right. there was a lot of folklore behind it being terrifying. Uh, during the next 15 days, it sailed through the waters of the Southern Ocean at the mercy. Oh, should I said that? My bad. On May 8th, thanks to Worsley's navigational skins, skills, the cliffs of South Georgia came into sight but hurricane force winds prevented the possibility of landing. The party was forced to ride out the storm offshore in constant danger of being dashed against the rocks. They later learned that the same hurricane had had sunk a 500-ton steamer bound for South Georgia from Buenos Aires. Wow. So can you imagine being a tiny-ass boat and surviving (laughs) a storm that sunk a 500-ton steamer? I mean, it feels like a lot of this. Feels like a lot of the ways that they'd survived, it was kind of just like you know unbelievable. You know, what I mean, it was like they had like a horseshoe up their ass or something. <laughs> uh, on the following day, they were able finally to land on the unoccupied southern shore, after a period of rest and recuperation, rather than risk putting to sea again to reach the whaling stations on the northern coast. Shackleton decided to attempt a land crossing of the island although it is likely the Norwegian whalers had previously crossed 
At other points on ski, no one had attempted this particular route before. For their journey, the survivors were only equipped with boots, and they had pushed screws into them to act as climbing boots. And 50 feet of rope. Uh, They left McNish, Vincent, and McCarthy behind at the landing point of South Georgia because they had come down with the illness at the point, and they didn't want them, you know, bringing them away because, you know, they'd just be, you know, basically, you know, you know what I'm trying to say. Like dead weight, basically, or something. Uh, The next successful crossing of South Georgia. Oh, wait, my bad. I went too far. Uh, Shackleton traveled 32 miles with Worsley and Crean over extremely dangerous mountainous terrain for 36 hours to reach the whaling station at Stromness. On twentieth, on May twentieth, and while they were crossing, at one point while they were on this mountain, they couldn't find, they couldn't see any other way down. So they tied rope to each other, and they had just jumped basically off the side of this mountain, <laughs> and just kind of just they kind of just slid off the side of this mountain, and just you know, said fuck it, you know, we're just gonna we're just gonna trust fate here. That's and awful. another cool thing that they said uh, that was in one of their diaries, I believe was that around this time, Shackleton had s- talked about feeling uh, a fourth man up there with them. He said he'd felt the presence of a fourth man, and that's what had helped them find uh, the South Georgia Whaling Station. Um, and when they did finally find South Georgia, uh, when Shackleton got there, he remembered, because remember, they had been there before, before their expedition started. And they'd become friends with a lot of people there. And he remembers asking one of the men, hey, who's in charge here now? And when they told him who was in charge, he said, oh, yeah, I remember, uh, you know, I remember meeting that guy. He said, can you take me to him? And they went to him and he said, and the guy was like, oh, yeah, who are you? And Because he, he didn't recognize Ernest Shackleton because his face had literally been filled with like icicles from his beard, <laughs> like freezing and shit. And he said, I'm Ernest Shackleton. And the captain couldn't believe it because at this point they were gone for almost two years everyone had thought they died basically you know what i mean nobody right. had heard from him so he was amazed that these men had survived but uh after Ernest had gotten his men food and gotten them rest he wasted no time sending a boat to pick up the other three men from the other side of south georgia while he set to work to organize the rescue of the elephant island men his first three attempts were foiled by sea ice which blocked the approaches to the islands. He appealed to the Chilean government, which offered the use of the Yelcho, a small seagoing tug from its navy. Yelcho, commanded by Captain Louis Pardo and the British whaler Southern Sky, reached Elephant Island on August 30th, 1960, at which point the men had been isolated there for four and a half months, and Shackleton quickly evacuated all 22 men the Yelko took the crew to Punto Ernest, and after some days in Valparaiso, Chile, Chile. the crowds, uh, there was crowds there warmly welcomed them back to civilization. But in one of um, the, one of the diaries of one of the men on Elephant Island uh, recorded remembering seeing that boat coming down the ocean. They thought it was a, you know, they thought it was like a, like a mirage or something. They didn't think it was real. And when they seen that it was Ernest Shackleton, they remembered saying, they remembered thinking, oh, here's the boss, come back to take us home. So, That's awesome. Know, it's pretty cool that, you know, regardless of everything, 
this uh, Ernest Shackleton never gave up on his men. And I think that's why this is as big of a story as it still is, is because any other crew wouldn't have survived what they survived, you know? And For I sure. think that's what makes it so big. Um, three, there remain the men of the Ross Sea Party who were stranded at Cape Evans and McMurdo Sound after Aurora had been blown from its anchorage and driven out to sea, unable to return. The ship, adrift of many months, had returned to New Zealand. Shackleton traveled there to join Aurora and sailed with her to the rescue of the Ross Party Sea Sea Party. This group, despite many hardships, had carried out its depot-laying mission to the full, but three lives had been lost, including that of its commander, Aeneas McIntosh. And, you know, that's... It's sad. Uh, and then, when Shackleton returned to England in May 1917, Europe was in the midst of its first world war. Suffering from a heart condition made it worse for Shackleton, but nevertheless, he volunteered for the army. So after going through that entire journey and dealing with all that bullshit, he came home and he still went and fought for his country. And I mean that. Uh, that ain't a man. I don't know what is. Right. Yo, I give I give this I give this man hell of a credit for fucking nearly dying in the Arctic. Like, hey, fuck! I'm coming back. I'm, I'm my heart is a little weak from the journey, but I'm going to do my duties as a as a as a tough motherfucker. <laughs> for uh, sure, man. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, and Shackleton had been known to reportedly request being posted in the front of France. Uh, and by now, he was been he had been drinking heavily. In October 1917, he was sent to Buenos Aires to boost British propaganda in South America. Unqualified as a diplomat, he was successful in persuading Argentina and Chile to enter the war on the Allied side. He returned home in April 1918. Shackleton was then briefly involved in a mission to Spitsbergen, to establish a British presence there under the guise of a mining operation. On the way, he was taken ill in Tramoso, possibly with a heart attack. Appointment to the military expedition Murmansk obliged, obliged him to return home again before departing for northern Russia. And then, you know, he went to northern Russia for a while to, you know, help with the war, help trying, you know, with the war. Uh, he had been finally discharged from the army in October 1919, retaining his rank of major. And then in December 1919, Shackleton returned to lecture circuit and published his own account of the Endurance Expedition. In 1920, tired of the the lecture circuit, Shackleton began to consider the possibility of a last expedition. He thought seriously of going to Beaufort Sea area of the Arctic, a largely unexplored region, and raised some interest in this idea from the Canadian government. With funds supplied by former school friend John Quiller Rowett, he acquired a 125-ton Norwegian sealer named Foka I, which he renamed Quest. The plan changed, the destination became the Antarctic, and the project was defined by Shackleton as the Oceanover... Oceanographic and sub-Antarctic expedition. The goals of the venture were to were imp- imprecise, but a circum 
navigation of the Antarctic continent and investigation of some lost sub-Antarctic islands, just as, such as Tuanaki, were mentioned as objectives. Rowett uh, agreed to finance the entire expedition, which became as the Shackleton Rowett Expedition. On September 16, 1921, Shackleton recorded a farewell address on a sound on a sound on film system requi- created by Harry Grindle Matthews, who claimed it was the first pi- first talking picture ever made. The expedition left England on September 14, 1921. Although some form some of his former crew members had not received all of their pay from the endurance expedition, many of them signed on with their former boss. When the party arrived in Rio de Janeiro. Shackleton suffered a suspected heart attack. He refused a proper medical ex- examination, so Quest continued south and on January 4, 1922, arrived at South Georgia. In the early, in the early hours of, morning, of the next morning, Shackleton summoned exp- the expedition's physician, Alexander Macklin, to his cabin, complaining of back pains and other discomfort. According to Macklin's own account, Macklin told him he had been overdoing things and should try to lead a more regular life. To which Shackleton answered, You're always wanting me to give up things. What is it I ought to give up? Chiefly alcohol, boss, replied Macklin. (laughs) A few months later, at 2.50 a.m. on January 5th, 1922, Shackleton suffered a fatal heart attack. What a life. Macklin, who conducted the post-mortem, concluded the cause of death was atheroma of the coronary arteries exacerbated by overstrain during a period of delivery. Leonard Hussey, a veteran of the Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition, offered the company the body back to Britain. While he was in Montevito en route to England, a message was received from Emily Shackleton asking that her husband be buried in South Georgia. Hussey returned to South Georgia with the body on the steamer Woodville, and on March 5, 1922, Shackleton was buried in the Grivetaken Cemetery, South Georgia, after a short service in the Lutheran Church with Edward Binney officiating. Macklin wrote in his diary, I think this is, as the boss would have said it himself, standing lonely in an island far from civilization, surrounded by stormy, tempestuous seas, and in the vicinity of one of the greatest exploits. Study of diaries kept by Eric Marshall, medical officer, 1907-1909 expedition, suggests that Shackleton suffered from an arterial septal defect hole in the heart and conjectional heart defect, which may have been the cause of his health problems. Wow. Shackleton's will was proven... In London on May 12, 1922, dying heavily in debt, Shackleton's small estate consisted of personal effects to the value of 560, 556 pounds, equivalent of 32,306 pounds in 2021, which he bequeathed to his wife. Lady Shackleton survived her husband, by 14 years, dying in 1936. And then on November 27th, November 2011, the ashes of Frank Wilde were interred on the right side of Shackleton's gravesite 
and Greg Tyfkin. The inscription on the roof, Hugh and Granite Block set the mark. The spot reads, Frank Wilde, 1873-1939, to Shackleton's right-hand man. That's pretty dope. Yeah. And then, uh, since we ended up going a little bit over, I didn't think it was going to be this long. So I can't go too deep into it. But a couple years later, in like 2002, I believe, or 2006, there was um, some of the ancestors of the original Nimrod crew had tried to uh, recreate um, the expedition. Really? Yeah. Uh, I believe Frank Worsley's great-great-grandson, Henry Worsley. And then uh, I believe there was someone related to Shackleton, I believe. I could be wrong, though. But the cool thing is, oh, yeah, they had gotten permission from Shackleton's great-great-granddaughter to go on the expedition. And she even gave Henry Worsley Shackleton's compass to help them to guide their way. That's fucking boss. As you were talking, continue story, I was trying to find pictures, updated pictures of his great-great-great-granddaughter. I was in the law each time. Well, I mean, she probably doesn't want to be... She probably... But, it's out of the spotlight, dude. I'm sure people fucking hit her up constantly, probably. But hey. I did, I did found uh, his like great great grandson or something. Like, I saw his Instagram. Like, huh, this is kind of cool. He's just driving a car in, in the Arctic. Nice. Hey, so uh, whatever happened to the boat? Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah. I want to know the what happened boat. to this boat. Hold on. Yeah, I've been. That- ca- I've been keeping my mouth shut the whole time. It's one of the right best now. parts <laughs> Yo, of shoot, this story. I've right been trying. Because like, you know how before we used to like fucking I ruined episodes before? <laughs> <laughs> well, <clears throat> that's funny you guys bring that up because that's actually one of my favorite parts of this story. Um, almost 100 years after it had sank in the bottom of the Weddell Sea, um, a group of explorers on a ship called the Agellus had set out to try and find the ship at the spot that Frank, uh, that, um, I forgot what his name was, Henry Worsley? Or Frank Worsley had said that it had sunk. Well, their first attempt, they ended up losing one of their underwater drones due to the, the ice, and just like Shackleton before them, they had to turn around and go home, and they were unsuccessful. But then a year later, in March 2022... This year. Almost 107 years after Shackleton's birthday in February 2020, or February whenever he was born, uh, the Gullis II had set out again, this time reaching their goal and finding the endurance at the bottom of the Weddell Sea in almost pristine condition. Yeah, like it was untouched. Fire, dude. Yo, yo. Untouched by the world. Awesome, man. Yo, if you think about it, I'm surprised James Cameron didn't bust a nut on that one. <laughs> it has been sitting 10,000 feet. It's been sitting in 10,000 feet of water over for over a century. It looks like it just went down the day they found it. Jesus. Yo, um, That's fucking It timbers, cool, although disrupted, are still very much together, and the name Endurance is clearly visible on the stern. <sighs> Without any exaggeration, this is the finest wooden shipwreck I have ever seen by far, said marine archaeologist Menson Bound, who is on the Discovery Expedition and has now fulfilled a dream ambition in his near 50-year career. Wow. 
Incredible story, man. Yo, um, you hear an interesting fact? It's not really about uh, about the Titanic. The pool never uh, drained out. I was trying to be funny. Get the fuck out. <laughs> I was going to say, duh. That's funny that you say that, though, because the team that worked on finding the Endurance were also the first ones to ever canvas the Titanic after. Really? Nice. You know, Yo, same team. Hey, that right there, I, I didn't really realize that that same team did for, did the canvas of the Titanic. I was, just, I was making a Titanic joke. Though. Nice little segue. Yo, um, it, I mean, me, personally, honestly, I... Th- I mean, everybody is going to know, basically, that my favorite, my biggest reason behind finding this, or behind this topic, why I liked it so much, is because they found the ship. Oh, dude. That's where I first found out about it. I seen a YouTube video, and I became obsessed. Nice. And I think the reason, me personally, why I become obsessed with stuff like this is because these guys live the life that I could only dream of. Absolutely. Oh, I'd love a- to be those that kind of guy who goes out and explores shit, you know, finds... Finds a piece of history. I would have loved right, to be yeah, part of Right, yeah, getting your name written in the history books for forever. And it's a crazy story of just human endeavor, man. Uh, there's people that just do incredible things just to further humanity, you know? And the one thing that I always see is when I was looking all this stuff up, I remember, I remember seeing a lot of these articles saying, you know, talking about Ernest Shackleton's failed expedition. I don't think it was a failed expedition at all. I think, yeah, they didn't reach their original goal, but they did exactly what they set out to do. You know, they they became a part of history. Ernest Shackleton and his crew will be talked about even after we're gone, probably. And this is going to sound pretty corny, but when they found his ship, (laughs) I think by finding the Endurance, that is finally the last member of the crew being laid to rest because they've agreed the fourth man. because they've agreed that the endurance will stay there in the Weddell Sea forever it'll never be touched by man so uh, so you guys that was you know that was your boy it's yeah. only when you uh, risk failure that you discover things when you play it safe you're not expressing the utmost of your human experience Oh, I like that quote at the end. That's a good one. Um, yeah, thanks for uh, giving us the information of Sir... Uh, fuck. This is the first time I had to say his name the whole fucking episode. Ernest... Shackleton. One of his great quotes, too, that I really like from Ernest Shackleton himself is, Men are not made from easy victories, but based on great defeats. Nice. And it's also pretty cool... Something I also wanted to mention real quick because I thought it was kind of funny. Um, there's a lot of people online that, I mean, it's never been proven, but there's a lot of people that say, you know, um, from the first Transformers movie, Sam Witwicky's great-great-grandfather, Archibald Witwicky, that his story is loosely based off of what happened to Ernest Shackleton. Oh, that'd be bad. Because his family motto in the movie is no victor or no sacrifice, no glory. So, you know. Right. I mean, it's never been proven, but there's the parallels. there's a lot of rumors that his story was loosely based off of actual Ernest Shackleton. Right, huh? Because the same thing happened to them. Their boat got stuck in the ice. So, you know, yo, uh, cool man, great, great uh, episode, dude. Yeah, I mean, I've been I've been wetting my jeans, dude, to finally do this. I've been 
Uh, poor Chub, I'm born a swamp for like two weeks talking about how excited about this episode. <laughs> um, yeah, speaking of that, uh, either, either uh, like when my episode comes up, it's going to be a, a real serious topic that we, need, that we need to bring to the table. Absolutely. We've been stepping it up lately. No, no, I'm talking about, uh, unless we get off the air, we could talk about it. But I know if you, because if, the, the episode I want to do is something we talked about in our beginning of our career. Yeah, cool. We'll, talk, we'll do it. We'll, we'll do it. We'll do it justice. Everything we do, we do justice. Yeah, thanks to Choop here, <laughs> we'd be all run, we'd run around with chickens like our heads cut off. Or, or you'd be if like Choop didn't step up and come on. Or we'd still be all out of order telling stories that fucking weave in and out of shit. <laughs> you came in, you domesticated us, man. <laughs> you kind of you kind of up a little. You kind of tightened up a little bit, not too too much, because you still get the wildness of Chopper Cheetah. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> All right, well, let's get on out of here because I just remembered I got to show you guys something before we go. All right, right on. So, uh, hey, thanks for joining us this week, boys and ladies. Uh, that was the story of Ernest Shackleton. Choop them out. Chop is out. And it's Cheetah. Thanks for riding along, losers. Mm-hmm.